Hello, you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe brought to you by New Ultra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. The Dietitian Cafe is a podcast for healthcare professionals to learn from and expand their horizons within the world of nutrition and dietetics. Each episode, we meet a wide variety of healthcare professionals and discuss many areas of nutrition and dietetics, from studying to academia, clinical to industry, to the NHS and freelancing. So for this episode, following the recent publication of a landmark review paper exploring the dietary strategies for remission of type 2 diabetes, we thought it would be great to get some of the researchers themselves together in the Dietitian Cafe to unpack the findings. I'm joined by three of the authors of this paper, GP Dr. David Unwin and registered dietitians Dr. Dwayne Meller and Dr. Adrian Brown. So let me tell you a bit more about our guests on this episode. Firstly, Dr. David Unwin is a fellow of the Royal College of GPs. He works at Norwood NHS Surgery in Southport, where he has cared for the same population since 1986 as a family doctor. To date, 105 out of 206 of his patients with type 2 diabetes who chose to follow a low-carb approach have achieved drug-free remission. He's published research into improving blood pressure, lipid profiles, and liver function by reducing dietary carbohydrates, especially sugar. Secondly, Dr. Adrian Brown is a research fellow and lecturer at University College London and a senior specialist weight management dietitian with over 15 years of experience. His research centers around obesity, type 2 diabetes, bariatric surgery, weight stigma, and use of low-energy diets. He is an honorary academic at Public Health England and vice chair of the specialist obesity group for the BDA. And lastly but not least, Dr. Dwayne Meller is the Aston Medical School lead for nutrition and evidence-based medicine and the associate dean for education in the College of Health and Life Sciences. He has a background in clinical dietetics, supporting people living with diabetes, and moved into medical education when joining Aston University. Duane has maintained his research and practice interest in diabetes care, working as a committee member of the BDA's Diabetes Specialist Group and supporting the development of nutritional management guidelines. So welcome to all three of you. And in, in this episode, we're going to be unpacking the evidence for the effectiveness of various dietary strategies for putting type 2 diabetes into remission. We'll talk about the methodologies and findings of this review paper, as well as asking the authors what their thoughts are on current diabetes management and any glaring gaps in clinical training. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome David, Dwayne and Adrian to the Dietitian Cafe Thank you very much for joining me all this evening. Hello. Hello. Thank you for inviting us, Harriet. Thank you. So I'm going to begin by asking you, Dwayne, if you could tell us a bit more um, background information as to what led you to conduct this narrative review. It started um, a few years ago when probably a lot of the listeners will hear there's a lot of tension between various views on diet and diabetes between certain people in the medical profession and dietitians about carbohydrate being good or bad and Adrian sort of was, uh, got a group of us together under the auspices of BDA and WCK kindly hosted it in their um, headquarters in London and after the discussion we found there's a lot of common ground and we thought it was important to to take this and work on what the common ground was and at the time remission of type 2 diabetes was becoming sort of more prevalent in both practice and the research so we decided 
to come together as a group to write this review on diabetes, uh, remission of type 2 diabetes and dietary ways of achieving that. Thank you, Dwayne. And, and for people who haven't read the paper, can you just remind us how many authors were involved in this publication? Well, that's, that's, I, I think it was five dietitians in total and about sort of four uh, doctors and, and we had a clinical psychologist, five doctors and sorry, I, I forgot one of the doctor colleagues and we had a clinical psychologist as well who, who contributed. Brilliant. And it's so great to have some of you with us tonight. Now, Adrian, I just wanted to ask you to perhaps share with us a brief summary of how you went about carrying out this review paper and also what the main findings were from this, um, this paper that you've published. Thank you, Harriet. Yes, um, as Dwayne said, um, we really wanted to get together and show what similarities we had as opposed to differences. So we conducted a novel review uh, that used both data from clinical trials and also experience from practice um, in order to sort of appraise the evidence and offer our readers some new insights into type 2 diabetes remission. And approaches that might be able to achieve it more in a real world clinical setting. So we looked at a range of dietary approaches that engendered type two diabetes remission. And in doing so, we created some practical tips for clinicians to help them to achieve remission in practice. One of our key points that we really wanted to make was that remission should be discussed as a primary treatment goal for people living with uh, type two diabetes. We found that multiple dietary approaches were um, uh, researched related to type 2 diabetes remission, though at present meal replacements in the term of total diet replacement, so that was the diets used in um, a direct study, offer the best quality evidence. However, when we looked further, low carbohydrates diets have been shown to be highly effective in nucleic uh, clinical audit data. So we'll be talking later um, about the fantastic results uh, from Dr. Unwin's clinic. And it, that should also be considered an approach for dietary um, uh, type 2 diabetes remission. We did find that uh, weight loss was the greatest driver of type 2 diabetes remission. However, if weight loss was not achieved, but individuals did achieve a non-diabetic blood glucose, we were suggesting that maybe those underlying drivers that were impacting on someone developing diabetes weren't necessarily reversed. And therefore we, we used the word mitigation as opposed to remission. So although that is an academic point, it was just a point that we felt was important to make. For the patient, their blood glucose being less than uh, 48 and off medication is where they want to be. And what we call it is more academic rather than anything else. And I think what we really wanted to show was there's a large variety of options out there um, for people to achieve remission um, and um, should be offered uh, for patients um, when they come and see them, even at the start of treatment. I'm not sure if Dwayne or David have anything else to add there. David, let's come to you. What would you like to add to that? I just wanted to explain why we don't talk about reversal. There's such a lot on social media about reversing uh, diabetes. 
And I, I think remission is so much a better term to use because it's a reminder to the clinician and also the patient that if you go back to your old habits, um, you very likely will end up in a similar problem that you began. So that I much prefer remission and not reversal of diabetes. Roy Taylor talks about reversal of diabetes, but he has the benefit of a scanner and can actually look what happens to the pancreas, the fat in the pancreas, and has an idea about beta cell function. But in general, the paper we wrote is about remission. And in fact, now there's a consensus around the definition of remission. And we're not talking about reversal um, in this paper. And that leads me perfectly onto my next question um, for Dwayne, which is, how do we define remission? I think it's a term that's uh, discussed, quite, discussed quite widely at the moment, but not everybody understands what it means. So could you explain that in a bit more depth, Dwayne? So in the paper, we had to use a number of different forms because the, the way the research was defined. But fortunately, as we published the paper, there was a consensus that was published between Diabetes UK, the American Diabetes Association, the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, which means that someone is off all medication for at least three months and has a HbA1c of below 48 millipoles per mole. In old terms, if people are old enough, that's below 6.5% in terms of HbA1c. In terms of the literature, there were studies that actually kept people on metformin, and that's very popular in America, um, in particular one of the groups there, because it's linked to a reduction in cardiovascular disease risk. So they still call it, had called it remission. And we actually came across a term because historically in the UK, weight loss was a characteristic. And, and, and Adrian's already talked about how weight loss reduces the, the fat around the pancreas and the liver and helps things to work better again. And that is why in our discussion, we talked about this idea of mitigation. Adrian's already talked about that, where we get a normalized glucose level, which hasn't changed the biology of the liver and the pancreas. But um, what's currently used and what's currently recommended is the, the international consensus, which is the 48 millimoles per mole for at least three months and our full medication. Yes, David, is there um, anything just, you'd like to add? Well, just to come back as Duane suggests, it, it's particularly pro, um, popular in America. The Verta people have done this a lot where they believe keeping people on metformin is an ethical um, thing to do. And yet they, they still talk about remission, which is probably fine. In, in my own practice, uh, I, I like the consensus now that is hemoglobin A1C of less than 48 and off all drugs for diabetes. And I find that patients like that because they, they feel they're no longer patients, if you know what I mean, because they're not on any medication. So to them, that's quite a significant milestone. And I'm not clinically convinced by the benefits of staying on metformin if your blood sugar is normal. But there is debate over that. Yes, and, and David, on that note, I wanted to ask from your GP perspective, going forward, is remission going to be the goal for every person living with type 2 diabetes? Or do you find in practice that there are groups of people perhaps for whom that aim would be contraindicated amongst? I think that's the important point about this review paper. Um, people with diabetes love the idea of remission. They really do. And it motivates them. I've seen three people in the last week who are just so proud when they achieve remission and they're not on metformin anymore. 
So I, I would, I'd, I'd never say all, um, but I find the majority of patients with diabetes, particularly when they're first diagnosed, are really interested in trying to achieve remission. They've heard about it. It's been in the media and it helps motivate them. And actually, of course, in all chronic diseases, we really have to have an idea to motivation. What motivates our patients and how do we maintain behavior? So if it's a goal they want, I think it's for the clinicians to fit in with that and try and help them achieve it. Adrian, have you got anything to add? Uh, I, I agree with David there wholeheartedly. I think what we need to be doing is we need to be listening to our patients. Um, we need to find out what their goals, whether it is remission or not remission. Some people will come in and not necessarily want to go on a low carbohydrate diet or do a TDR. And I think what we've got to do is we've got to support them in the way that they want to manage their diabetes. We in, in, uh, education and informing them around remission and telling them about remission around other treatments, I think it's our role um, if they haven't heard of it. But I think we need to be very much listening to our patients and um, um, in terms of the um, goals that they have going forward. So if, we don't, if we're not offering uh, remission, we should um, be listening to our patients if they come and ask for it. Dwayne, do you have anything to add to that? I think there's, there's two little things. Is If someone doesn't achieve it, they shouldn't be made to feel a failure. They should be supported in the, the goals, the steps that made forward. They will have improved their blood glucose. They would have improved their cardiovascular risk. They would have improved their sort of life expectancy. And that needs to be celebrated. So we need to remember that. And sort of we, we talk about, and a large percentage of people will be losing weight. Not all people with type 2 diabetes are overweight or obese. And that can be more challenging because they've got subtle differences in their types of diabetes, their type 2 diabetes, and we need to bear that in mind. So it's about supporting, as both Adrian and David says, the individual and celebrating their success. Ideally, if they can get to remission, brilliant, but every step they make towards sort of more normalised glucose levels is a win. David, let's come to you again. Well, and I just wanted to uh, give a shout out for dietitians. And I want to do this by pointing out, though. so in nine years, I've asked every single patient that comes into my practice with type 2 diabetes, how they feel about lifelong medication and whether they're interested in a dietary alternative. And the great news for dietitians is not one patient, not a single patient in nine years has opted for the lifelong medication. Not one and that is how my practice is saving £58,000 per year on the drug budget. Savings that could be spent on more clinicians helping people with diet. Because with a, maybe my practice is really unusual. We've got 9,500 patients just north of Liverpool. But I don't think it is unusual. I think people are really interested in avoiding lifelong medication. And in my practice, diet has achieved this. In, well, it's 109 times now, uh, four more uh, in the last two weeks. So that's just a shout out for what diet can achieve. We are, I think, clinicians, and uh, I suppose it's my colleagues now, I think we rush to medication because we're tired, we're exhausted, and we haven't had the, the energy to explore diet with patients. I find patients are really interested in this and capable of change. 
Thank you for sharing that, David. And later in the episode, I'm going to ask you a bit more about how you practically help your patients and that patient-centered approach with changing their lifestyle and diet. Just before we go on to that, um, the paper talks about the importance of achieving remission, particularly within six years of um, being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Can I ask, Adrian, what's the significance of the first six years after diagnosis? Um, Some really um, interesting comments there. So a great question. So what we notice is that um, from previous data, so when we look at remission data originally, originally remission data was very much seen from bariatric surgery data. So what we were seeing from surgical patients is that we were seeing people coming off large uh, huge quantities of insulin and achieving non-diabetic glycemia very rapidly. And when they looked at some of that data, what they noticed is a few things. And one of them was particularly around uh, the duration of diabetes. So they noticed that um, the sooner you actually treat someone, the more likely you are to get remission. Now, there's a variety of different things that are going on there, but one of them is definitely around um, the beta cells and having active beta cells. Because when we look further at Roy Taylor's work and you look at what achieved remission from, um, from the data, it was very much a sense that the, uh, there was an ability to restore this first phase insulin response. So that is the insulin response that happens very rapidly after you eat. And what we notice with diabetes is that reduces. So if you are able to, um, uh, ability to restore that, then you're more likely to get type 2 diabetes remission. And the earlier we get it, the better. So when you look at the data and you look at the direct study, they were all less than three years. When you look at a more recent study that actually was um, done in Qatar with Professor um, uh, Shara Tahiri, his um, cohort, which were Middle Eastern African um, uh, individuals, what we found is that they had um, diabetes for less than two years. So these individuals, what they found is 61% of participants achieved remission with an average weight loss of around 12 kilos. And really interestingly, 33% achieved normal glycemia, which is a blood glucose of less than 5.7 millimoles per liter. So what we're noticing is that the early we get in, the more likely you are to achieve remission. There's other factors that can also um, potentially predict whether you're going to have uh, type 2 diabetes remission. So, for example, achieving significant amounts of weight loss. Um, uh, what we found is, in, particularly in the first 12 months, it's a lower HbA1c. And at 24 months, it's actually older age and male. And that's from George Stone's work of the direct study. So that's what we currently believe. Um, but um, David um, uh, or Dwayne, anything else to add there? Yes, I something to add uh, to what Adrian said and something to add to what Dwayne said. So actually, we stratified in the practice how long people had had diabetes and how likely they were to achieve remission. So we stratified them according to years. And what's interesting is if you try uh, a low-carb approach and the person has had diabetes for less than 12 months, 76% of those individuals will achieve remission. It drops down 
over about five years and then plateaus at somewhere between 8% to 10%. But the hope is that we have people who've had diabetes for 15 years who still achieve remission. So there's always hope. The second thing I don't, uh, Duane was talking about people who don't achieve remission and it's really important we don't forget these individuals. Uh, my message of hope for those is that what we discovered was that the people with the worst diabetic control get the best results. So the people with the highest hemoglobin A1c, and we've got quite a few, hemoglobin A1c is over 120 millimoles per mole, which is sky high. And most people would be reaching for the prescription pad. I don't. They have a high blood sugar because of what they've eaten. And uh, when we did regression analysis, the people with the highest hemoglobin A1c, although less likely to achieve remission, achieve greater improvements in their uh, hemoglobin A1c than the remission group. So there's hope for everybody. That's the end of my interruption. Uh, very interesting to hear, um, David. And I wondered roughly how long does it take for you to start seeing those results in your patient cohort? The fastest I've seen uh or the fastest I've seen somebody normalize a hemoglobin A1C was 38 days. They had a hemoglobin A1C of, I think it was about 60, and it went down to 38 in 38 days. I was astonished because we're told that it takes 120, uh, 120 days, but actually you get the majority of the improvement in the first six weeks. So I'm redoing a practical point on the blood tests because it's so important that people get the feedback and the encouragement to carry on. So I'd normally repeat the hemoglobin A1C at about six weeks because you see improvement quite quickly, particularly those with poor diabetic control. And of course, the ones with poor diabetic control are at greater risk. So you need to be following them up more closely anyway, in case they come to harm. So uh, I follow them up more closely. And David, just to clarify, if you're seeing a patient who's had type 2 diabetes for more than six years, is it still appropriate to have a conversation with them about achieving remission? I can see Adrian nodding away in the background. Yes, I, I think so, because some of them do. But of course, because of what I now know, and in fact, um, there's a paper being produced with Roy Taylor and I on this very subject about it's important to modulate expectation. Mm. And so with what I know... I'm saying you're still in with a chance for remission and we'll give it our best. But actually, you know, um, if you could avoid uh, medication, if you could improve your diabetic control, there's good evidence that your quality of life is going to improve. And that's what it's all about. So I use what I know to modulate expectation. And uh, you, you're down to about a 10% chance if you've had diabetes for longer than six years. But it's really absolutely we, we must never give up on people. Uh, the oldest I've done is 92 years old. And wow. that person is still gardening. I rang up the other day and she was too busy to talk because she was busy doing the bird feeders in the garden. <laughs> Good for her. Adrian, I can see you, you want to add something here. I, was, I just agree with David. I think, I think modulating expectation at the start and explaining that 
that there is a chance of you getting remission, but it doesn't happen for everyone. Um, and that this is one option that we have on the table, whether it be low carb or using a TDR, but there's other options potentially for this individual. So I think we need to share and say, okay, we're going to have a good go at this. But as David was saying, there is hope there. Um, and that's really important that we that we give it to pa patients and, and we, we help them along their journey. So I was just sort of, nodding away at David vigorously uh, as uh, agreeing um, completely with him there. Yes, and, and it's so um, exciting to hear how passionately you all talk about this topic and, and how involved the patients are in these decisions. I just want to um, sort of move to the sideline a little bit and talk about current guidance for dietary management of type 2 diabetes. Dwayne, I wanted to ask you, ask you what your thoughts are on that. And also, is there still a place, do you think, for typical first-line dietary advice that perhaps many of our dietitians listening will be giving out when they see patients in clinics? I, th I think this is going to turn into a discussion with David. But one of the problems is dietitians don't see people with diabetes necessarily at the right time to get long-term meaningful change. We tend to get to see them in group education when they're first diagnosed. So it's panic stations dealing with crisis. I've got this diagnosis. What do I do? Um, so it's not necessarily the best place to have the conversation of what would better look like. And that's a long-term decision. So we need to look at how we practice and have the opportunity to have those conversations and keep the door open. Because sometimes when we see people with diabetes at newly diagnosis with this panic station sort of initial advice, it settles things down, but it doesn't solve the problem. And we need to actually, again, have realistic expectations that we may give this type of advice to start off with, which is very much of trying to get to grips with it, understanding what living with diabetes is, understanding what it means. And then once, once we're at a position where we can actually look at long-term change, we can talk about remission. We can talk about these things at the beginning, but sometimes it's not the right time. Um, so based on that comment, there is still a place for some sort of holding type advice why people get to process that diagnosis. But the holding advice, that, that, that initial advice should also include the thoughts about remission, the thoughts about different options for the management of their diabetes. And then it's having the, the ability to have that door open so people can come back when it's right to have that discussion. Unfortunately, not all our healthcare systems and our, our sort of uh, dietetic services are, are staffed or able to accommodate that. And it would need some reorganization to have, have that approach. But that's what I honestly believe is the answer. Thank you very much, Dwayne. And David, what, what's your thoughts on current dietary management of type 2 diabetes? Well, generally, over the country, it's incredibly poor. Uh, you know, this is what motivates me because the actual care for people with type 2 diabetes, the actual average haemoglobin A1Cs that are being achieved are very poor. And that I think we can all do so much better. And I think diet is the way to do it. Um, one of the things I'd say to Duane, I think the tragedy is they patients get to see a dietitian once at the beginning and never again. Mm. And it's absolutely key to clinicians. This is a chronic disease. And I have learned a lot because of the continuity of care that I have with my patients. So I'm learning and getting better. But if dietitians see somebody once at the beginning and there's no continuity, how are those dietitians to learn what works? How are they to get the joy 
from the feedback when patients do really well. And if my practice is saving such vast amounts of money, you know, if every practice in the country prescribed as we prescribe, you would save £270 million on the diabetes drug budget. So that would employ quite a lot of useful clinicians to give continuity of care for people with type 2 diabetes. And I think that is so, it's key, the continuity of care, because it isn't, about, it isn't just about remission, it's also about maintenance. And uh, all sorts of people, you can do remission in different ways. But what's common to all the approaches is a need for investment in maintenance because the people need ongoing support. And that's why, that's what I have found at Nord Avenue. If I'm to improve year on year, so at the moment, I think we're at 51% remission. Well, that's achieved at three years by putting a lot of energy into maintenance. And I think it's such a shame that dietitians get uh, used just at the beginning. The other thing I'd say is clinicians, again, my colleagues, they tend to conclude if somebody's hemoglobin A1C goes up, they conclude that diet, the dietary approach has failed. That is not the case. They're not on the diet anymore and they need reminding. So my response to somebody who's hemoglobin A1C has gone high isn't that my dietary advice has failed. It's to ask the patient, where do you think the sugar in your diet has come from? And then they say, oh, yeah, fair cop, doc, it's biscuits. I suppose I ought to give them up. And I say, yes. And then let's do the hemoglobin A1C in six weeks time. But so many clinicians, when they see the hemoglobin A1C, forget about diet altogether and reach for the prescription pad. And that's why we're seeing an exponential growth in drug budget savings. But just think of it from a patient perspective. I think it's wicked to do that. Because those people, many of them could help themselves and we demotivate them. And they think like my mother felt, well, I suppose I can eat what I like because I'm now on diabetic medication, which she didn't need. So I, I just think we need to go around the loop again, not just train them once. This is a lifelong condition that requires ongoing input. And I'll shut up now. That's very interesting to hear. Dwayne, sorry, did you want to add something? I think that the hope with the dietetics is these first contact practitioners and the primary care network positions where there is getting dietitians out there to see patients regularly and getting that continuity of care in practices. And that's that's what I'm hoping will grow as a way of delivering that. And I also, um, I, I'm old enough to remember 20 years ago of uh, dietetic practice. And I used to get referred patients after they've been threatened with me by their doctors. And we need to build partnership that it's not a threat. Dietitians offer, and, and David uses the word so much, and it's so important in diabetes, hope a different way of doing things, a different way of looking at it. And I think we should start viewing diets and the role of dietitians in diabetes as being able to offer hope, a different way of looking at diet, a different way of looking at what some people living with diabetes see as a constant battle with food. And we can provide a different way of looking at that. And that hope is a key thing, that positive thing to help make life better. And you just talked about a different approach to food. On that note, I want to come to you, Adrian, and ask, um, do we need a different approach to the Eat Well Guide? Or do you think that's still an appropriate tool to be using with a patient 
with type 2 diabetes who's perhaps interested in following a low-carb approach? Harriet, that's a really interesting question. Now, let's look at what the Eat Well Guide is there to actually do. It's not designed for obesity or type 2 diabetes uh, management. That's not what it's there to do. It's there to advise population health from epidemiological studies to look at reduction of risk from eating certain foods and limiting others. However, it is currently being used on a regular basis because we quote unquote are looking for a healthy diet in type 2 diabetes management. And there's not enough dietitians out there to give education. There's not enough aspect. So Eat Well Guide has ended up precipitating into being this diet that is brought in and shown to patients. However, does a large amount of carbohydrates yeah, increase your blood glucose? Yes, it does. If someone has a high HbA1c, giving them more um, carbohydrate, will that increase their blood glucose? Yes, it will. Will it increase their HbA1c if they're not losing weight? Yes, it will. So should we be looking at alternatives? Yes, we should. So I think we've got to be very clear. And this is a, a lot of uh, issues that I've seen when people are saying, uh, why is everyone recommending it? Well, actually, it's not there to design and talk about for type 2 diabetes management. However, it has ended up coming through and being shown by practitioners as a healthy diet, because that's what we're seen to sort of be recommending with not having dietitians out in clinical practice. And I think this is very much going on to David's and Dwayne's point. There's a lack of dietitians in the community. Type 2 diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes got brought out into primary care. And unfortunately, with that movement, Got, some got amazing care and some necessarily didn't and dietitians didn't follow them. So I think hopefully, as, as you were saying, the first contact practitioners, I think are going to be an absolute key. These PCNs are going to be great to try and drive forward some more continuity and making sure people get access to the clinicians that they actually need. So on that note, then, Adrian, what needs to change in clinical practice, um, particularly for dietitians in an ideal world? If you could wave a magic wand, what would what would you change? What would I change? I, I think David had a point just first and then I'll come in with my wand uh, waving solutions with Dwayne, I think. <laughs> well, we can extend that question to you, David, as well. Yeah. What, what would you change? Well I was just going to mention Dr. Nicola Guess, actually, another very well-known dietitian, and she makes a really good point, and it's about data. One of, one of the effects of dietitians seeing somebody once and never again is they never get the chance to collect data. And in the modern world, it's so necessary to, to have figures for what you achieve. And so if dietitians could be part of the primary healthcare team, they could also collect data and know how they are doing. So 10 years ago, when we actually had a dietitian in, in my practice, because she only saw the patient's wants, she wasn't in a position to collect data on how effective she was. And what's absolutely key about being a valued clinician is collecting data. And I think dietitians are missing out on opportunities for collecting data to demonstrate what you can do. And that only if you see the patients several times so that like me, you can then look at a cohort or you can talk about the service that you offer. I think that's a major, major problem 
for dietitians if they only get to see the patient once? How can they possibly demonstrate that what they do is, is good? And the PCNs and primary care is the perfect place for that because we have got that, uh, that continuity. And, and that, was, that was my interruption, sorry. That's very interesting to hear. Um, I know that Nicola Guess shares a lot of her findings on Twitter as well, so we can certainly link to her um, social media profiles in case anyone would like to find out more about her research. So, Adrian, just coming back to you, what would you change in clinical practice um, off the back of your your paper? What would I change off off the back of my paper? Um, I guess I would definitely be encouraging clinicians to talk about remission at the start straight away. Um, and particularly dietitians. The thing is that we need more clinicians. We need more specialist teams out in the, uh, out in the community. Um, I think nurses, doctors, and dietitians working as as a team together. Um, I think a lot there's there appears to be a lot of isolation going on. J- David's got an amazing practice, but does he have a dietitian? Um, with him no he he doesn't have a dietitian with him would he benefit from having a dietitian I'll ask David later on Um, he's nodding so yes Um, but but that's what we need we need to have these these teams to enable us to manage manage people and 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 clear pathways how we can get people from the, the group sessions that, that see huge numbers of people uh, and, and start, as Dwayne said, start that process from, from the, the sort of mile, from the panic that might be there when people are diagnosed to actually then going, okay, well, I want to manage my diabetes. Now, what do I do? And I think we need to have more clinicians um, out in the community. So I guess offering remission, uh, we need to be moving away from our preconceived ideas. And this is what I often see is that dietitians and clinicians have an idea in their head of what the perfect diet is, and then they demonize something else. And I think it goes away from what the data says. And our study, our, our, our review, breaks through that. Yes, RCTs are the, the, the gold standard. However, does that mean that we should be ignoring all the fantastic data out there that's being collected in clinical practice, like from David's practice. No, we shouldn't. We should be using that data and finding it out. And I think right at the start, having spoken to David, and David might speak a little bit later on about how at the start, dietitians were a little bit wayward of David coming into their quote unquote territory. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be talking about diet. Uh, this, this is our area. And I think, well, David's done an amazing job and, and I think uh, move things forward in terms of his patients. Wow. The, the reductions and the, and the, the wonderful stories that you hear on Twitter and from David are just life changing. And I think we should be working with clinicians that are doing this as opposed to working against them so i guess it i guess my my thing is really about coming together as as all together and working on the on the common ground which we all want to do we want to help patients we want to help patients achieve remission we want to get them uh, uh, to achieve their goals and i guess we were going to do it better together rather than as individuals Absolutely. And I, I, it'd be interesting to hear, Dwayne, if you have any thoughts as to why perhaps, particularly on social media platforms like Twitter, it's become so polarised when discussing dietary management of type 2 diabetes. At times, it's really become quite a personal attack on different scientists, health professionals. What, what do you think has led to that? 
I think it's an easy topic to have aside. It's a hard topic to sort of go, well, both points of view have got validity. And then people go, well, you've got to have an opinion because the thing is food, if you go back to food, everyone has foods they like and foods they dislike. Food is the one, one of the few topics possibly alongside no politics. Some people just avoid politics. You can't avoid food. So you can't avoid food. Everyone has an opinion about food and they're very happy to share it. And it gets very tenuous and threatening. And I think it took this, this age and getting this group together to get us to take a step back from this. And it's a lot better than we go back to, you know, working as a team. And remember, the most important person in this team is the people living with the conditions that are supported by dietary change. So in this, this instance, we're talking about people with diabetes. So they're the most important people in this team that we're looking at. And we need to work around them and to go to the common goal, which we all want, is to make life better for people living with diabetes. Possibly so they're not living with diabetes and they're in remission, which is even better. And... That is hard to get across in a such a limited, short-framed character. You know, I still have debates with David where we don't quite agree on the science, but we agree on what's right for the patients. And that's what matters. And we like each other. And we get on and have friendly, quite robust debates. But we remember that the important thing is the people living with these conditions that we're trying to support. We can niggle about the science on the edges, but the core things in the middle remain the same and we should focus on the core things that matter. And it doesn't help anybody if we get aggressive and you know, faults have been made on many sides by those in, in the highest position. I've probably said some things I shouldn't have done in the past. A lot of people have. And uh, uh, a lot of even organizations have said things that they probably shouldn't have. And I think we all need to take a little bit of a step back and say, sorry, the past is the past. We have said things, we've learned, we've moved forward, and now we need to continue to move forward in a way that helps people that we're here basically to serve. And we need to remember we're here to serve people who want and benefit from dietary change. We're not here to serve our own opinions, and we need to set them to one side. And it isn't easy, and it takes a lot of learning and a lot of humility to, for us all, I think, to get to this point. No, thank you so much for explaining that in such a um, succinct way. And obviously, this review paper is, you know, testament to all the researchers coming together with some very differing uh, views, perhaps, to, to, like you said, improve patient care and keep patients at the centre of centre of those decisions. So, just before we come to the end of the episode, I wanted to come back to you, David, to find out a little bit more about how practically you're helping your patients to achieve remission of their type two diabetes. Um, can you tell us a bit about how that works day to day in your in your clinical practice? Yeah, I've come to understand the value of information rather than advice. I think years ago I saw myself as like God, you know, and I'd tell my patients what they should do. And I think the same can happen uh, with dietitians, where you give advice, and I think it's better to give relevant information. And I try now really very hard to give dietary information that fits in with physiology so that my patients can remember it. So they don't actually need to go away with a diet sheet, particularly, because I'm talking to them about physiology and how the information fits in 
with physiology. And I've done this with all the way from students up to the lady who's 92. People are cleverer than I used to give them credit for. And if they can understand the information I give them, that really helps them make a better choice. And what Adrian was talking about earlier was the problem with RCTs. It's a bit like, Harriet, would you go on a diet that you didn't like for three years, even for me? No, you wouldn't, would you? Choice is absolutely key to diet. And so we, we need to work with people's choices, not because I didn't do an RCT, say that my work is rubbish, because then that eliminates choice or try and, if you can, there may be ways to put choice into research. That would be really interesting. So this is what I try and do. I try and give relevant information based on the patient's goals and hopes for the future. I try and make that information fit in with their understanding of physiology and help them understand the physiology of type 2 diabetes better. Roy Taylor's done us all a great favor by illustrating the importance of fatty liver and the fatty pancreas. And my patients understand that. And we, we talk about that so that they then, and I think the other thing is, uh, my final giveaway really is, uh, so I talk to my patients about a hemoglobin A1C is an average sugariness of your blood in the preceding three months. So it's very relevant to ask that patient, where do you think the sugar has come from in your diet? And questions, my wife Jen is a psychologist and she's taught me that questions are more powerful than statements. If we keep telling people things, they don't listen. If I ask a question, something cognitive occurs. So when I ask patients, where do you think sugar has come from in your diet? I'm doing that 20 times a day. I get some really interesting answers. And then it's pretty obvious what the patient ought to do. And it's patient-centered. Um, I think I've said enough, don't you? That'll do. I'll shut up now. No, that's really useful. But I think there are going to be a couple of common burning questions that our listeners are going to have. First of all, I want to ask you, how long are you spending with these patients? Is this all done in a 10 minute consultation? Do they join a group program? How does it work? And do you Thank follow you. up? Do you follow up with them as well? Yeah. So, yes, I am running NHS 10 minute appointments. And I, ha I used to do it in seven and a half minutes and before that five minutes. So 10 minutes is luxury, northern luxury. Um, we were forced in the practice because we had no money. We were forced to do groups. And I think this is something dietitians could really join in on. Uh, so uh, we've been running group now, uh, group consultations for nine years. And I think running groups is really interesting. It's really effective. It's exciting. You get patient experts. It has all sorts of benefits. And it's a it's a new modern way to deal uh, with some of the financial problems that we have in the practice. And so uh, this Thursday, we'll be running a Zoom group uh, because that's what's happened with groups. So I, I've got 10 minutes appointments. Bear in mind, all the GPs in the practice, there are nine doctors. They're all having low carb successes and the nurses as well. So everybody there uh, is all getting involved. But on top of that, I think... Um, Group consultations are so interesting. And um, also, it, it's an opportunity for mixing a practice nurse with a dietitian or a GP with the practice. You know, you can mix the clinicians and learn from each other. And I, I think the, the, the patients are the ones that benefit. 
Um, just just before we move on to our final questions, I wanted to ask um, Dwayne, we know that there's limited research into the effectiveness of um, dietary approaches such as total diet replacement and low carb beyond two years. So how do we help patients in the long run to keep this weight off? Uh, I think that's a, 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 a sort of a tribe that's quite often thrown at any sort of dietary approach. Do we have any dietary evidence for most diets beyond one consultation in practice? In studies, we probably have up to six months. And in these cases, we've got two years. Um, we have to put that because that's the thing that's challenging us. And that's what NICE wants before we make recommendations, because now we you have to have um, cardiovascular drug benefits for five years or more before you can improve a drug long-term in America. We don't have that for diet, and that shouldn't stop us using diet. What we need is looking at the long-term benefits, which David was saying, it's about long-term support, and it's about how being able to have conversations that the dietitian isn't a threat, they're a positive a source of hope and ideas so they can continue to shape and change their diet in a way they enjoy, but maintain the progress they've made. So we need to look at the reframing of how we support people long-term. And also we need to look at how we can make it a positive experience of seeing dietitians rather than seeing, you know, you failed with your diet. You need to go and speak to the, the food police. We're not the food police. Most people who are dietitians love food. They love talking about food and they really like to work with people and get the message across that dietitians support people to make the food choices they want to make, not the food food choices that the dietitian chooses. So again, it's about the questions David was saying, you know, you can explain something about the biology, the physiology, you can talk about food and say, how might that fit into the foods you like? And then you share the conversation. So I think the long-term bit, the research, that's an artifact. What actually matters is working with our systems to collect data, which David was very clear on, that long-term follow-up and support makes difference to people's lives. And that's what we need. I don't think we need longer-term dietary studies because we can't get them funded. We need to do it from the bottom up, having practice collected quality data. Adrian, you've got something to add. No, I, th I agree with, uh, with Duane about the long-term follow-up and, and David. And I think this is in part part of the issue of how we currently manage chronic disease. We manage chronic disease in blocks of time. So you have a 12 week block of education or a 12 week block of weight management treatment or a 12 month block. And then after 12 months, you're quote unquote sorted. What we need is that, as we're saying, that lifelong support and how we can provide that. And I guess in part, this is where peer support and groups will come in on having patients actually support each other in the long term. We need to be, we can be there in the background, but I think the way that often um, services are developed are they're developed over a 12 month period or six month period. And we need to be thinking further because ultimately HBA will see darts change over time. So I, I guess it's, how can we, as a, as a country, as the UK, offer 
lifelong support to people with chronic disease. And I think that's the incredible challenge um, going forward and ahead to make sure that a risk mission isn't just achieved in the short term, it's achieved in the long term. David, would you like to add something? I would. I was talking earlier about the psychology of some of this. And one of the key things is feedback. Uh, feedback about when things are going well and also feedback when you're not doing as well. And a really important thing for all clinicians is to work out what form of feedback would suit the person in front of you. So I have, I have people who measure their waist. It's actually very useful because they know if their waist is getting bigger, they need to come back. Some people can weigh themselves, but there's a new form of feedback, that's the new kid on the block that's really exciting, and that is the ability to monitor blood glucose 24-7. So the Freestyle Libra, how interesting that is because it gives people feedback on how they're doing. And I'm going to tell you all a secret. I break the rules. I'm prescribing the Freestyle Libra to people with type 2 diabetes because you can really help them get off medication and be safe. And it gives them feedback along the lines of that diet is suiting me. I'm so happy. Look, look at the tracing. Or that diet isn't suiting me. What was it that I ate that put my blood sugar up? And it really, it bringing the idea of individualizing diet into a whole new realm. And how exciting if dietitians could get involved in that. Why does a freestyle Libra why does that have to be a GP or a doctory thing? You know, it, it's a really useful tool for feedback for clinicians and their patients. And in any case, people are buying them. In any case, in large numbers, my patients are buying them because they've heard about them and they, they are fascinated by the results. And feedback, it gives you feedback and it helps solve, solve the puzzle of where did that sugar come from? I'll stop again now. Oh, very interesting. I think we could do a whole entire um, follow-on episode from this, to be honest with you. In fact, we are having um, a couple of dietitians for a part two of this episode in a few weeks' time to talk about the direct study in more detail. So it'd be really interesting to continue these conversations. So my final question to you all before we wrap things up this evening, um, I'm going to combine two questions into one and I'm going to ask it to each of you. Do you think there's any glaring gaps in clinical training at the moment? And finally, what would be your number one takeaway message from this podcast episode? So I'm going to come to Dwayne, first of all. So biggest gap in clinical training and your takeaway from this episode. I'm going to go back to the, we need to focus on the patient and give them hope. We, as training we should be given as dietitians at least a range of dietary tools in our training we might not be given all of them that vary depending on you know, sort of the college and university you go to but we need to actually focus on how we give people hope and choice and how do you actually move from giving a dietary prescription to giving dietary advice Slight second bit, I'll extend that, is we need to look at the timing we're seeing patients and move from emergency sitting to actually long-term getting life to be better. So what I take away from this paper is it's about giving the tools to the patient. It's not about us owning that knowledge of 
what might lead to remission or what might not lead to remission or which dietary approach is best. We need to have that discussion so patients have that information. We shouldn't be perceived as keeping it secret. We should share it openly in a positive way so people can make the choice about how they want to manage their diabetes with no bias from the health professional at all. Thank you, Dwayne. And your biggest message from from this episode? I, I think is talk to people about remission of type 2 diabetes and finding the approach that works for them. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dwayne. On to you, Adrian. You're on mute. Yeah, I think Dwayne uh, took my my, my number one home message going forward. Um, I guess from clinical training, um, I think the courses in the UK are absolutely fantastic. I think once people get into practice, they need to continue to be inquisitive. They need to continue to question whether what I am doing is the best thing for my patient. So a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of um, dietitians, as long with other clinicians, are incredibly busy. But CPD and questioning and looking at the data and then going with what the evidence-based says is so important. We're evidence-based practitioners and we need to remain that and continue to um, be inquisitive and question um, our, our, our practice continuously through our, um, through our careers. And I, I guess that's when data um, that David and Dwayne were talking about earlier on is so important in collecting data and understanding what's happening with your patients so that you can make informed decisions about moving forward. I guess moving on, I think take home message from this episode is that if we come together, we're more powerful than being alone. So I think it's about clinicians, uh, dietitians, nurses coming together to help patients um, uh, to achieve remission uh, on a national basis. And I, I, I really am, I, I, I'm looking forward to the next steps because I really think that we've, we've shown people that, that people can within both camps can come together and agree and I think this is a really big step and um, forward and hopefully um, this review will start to get people to think a little bit differently and actually move forward and offer a mission. So I guess that's my point. Thank you, Adrian. And last but not least, David. I think the first thing, I'm absolutely astonished to find myself um, giving this wonderful podcast. And it, it's, a, it's another beacon of hope, really. If I'd known years ago that we could find so much shared ground and it would end up so friendly and everything, it's just wonderful. And my recurring message is about shared goals. And it's shared goals with patients and it's shared goals with clinicians and shared goals with academics. We should begin with what we're hoping for and discuss the different ways, not begin with arguments and defending to the death, uh, you know, and that generally works in life. And, and surely all of us agree that junk food needs knocking on the head. All of us agree that the nation is suffering with probably the worst diet for a very long time. And it's all hands to the pumps. There are enough sick people, let me tell you. And um, so this paper was about people with differing opinions agreeing on rather a lot and publishing it. Amazing. 
really and well done to Duane and Adrian who actually had the patience to go through all the various iterations of this paper the pain that must have been very great but it's a towering achievement and it shows when we think about shared goals with colleagues and with patients what we can achieve you talked uh, my final point is about um, physiology and and gaps in training I uh, feel that most doctors have no idea, uh, let's not say that, let's say a lot of doctors or me 10 years ago, I had no idea about fatty liver disease and it's now a quarter of everybody in the developed world. I had no idea about the dietary causes of a high triglyceride. These are really interesting things and we should be thinking about fatty liver because that's the beginning of insulin resistance. And I know that a quarter of all my patients have fatty liver disease. And what are we doing for them? Um, we're just waiting till they get sick. And yet I think there's a lot we could do. And a lot of discussion should take place around fatty liver disease and the high triglycerides because clinicians do not know what to do with the high triglyceride. And I believe dietitians could shine there because the statins won't help you. Uh, I'm coming across in every clinic people with a high triglyceride, a low HDL, and I think the diet can help. So that's it from me. Thank you. It's been great fun. Great fun, really. I think you've just given yourself a follow-on episode there, David. You can, <laughs> you can come back and bring all the clinical data. You'll never the get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Adrian, David and Dwayne, thank you so much for your time this evening and for sharing your valuable experiences with us all. Our guests' social media handles will be linked in the show notes for you to take a look at. A huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you do enjoy listening to the Dietitian Cafe podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or even a five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can also follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and hear more updates on medical nutrition. Thank you very much for listening and our next episode will be out very soon.